Right, we conclude uh, this series in Joshua tonight, um, which means that uh, those of you really paying attention will know that in the previous nine talks, we've covered, covered chapters one to nine. So that leaves us just tonight to uh, do chapters 10 to 24. I'll read them very quickly. No, I won't. Um, you'll soon get the idea why we're not going to do them all in the kind of detail that um, we've done the others in. Really, tonight it's chapter 10 we're going to be doing, but we will be just polishing off the rest of the book. So, um, find Joshua chapter 10. Um, I'm going to read the first 15 verses, and, um, and, and then I'll come on to... Um, verses 16 to 28 a bit later so we'll take this in two sections initially <clears throat> so joshua chapter 10 right okay now adonozidek king of jerusalem heard that joshua had taken ai and totally destroyed it doing to ai and its king as he had done to jericho and its king and that the people of gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and were living near them. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai and all its men were good fighters. So Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham, king of Hedron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. <clears throat> then the five kings of the Amorites, Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, who defeated them in a great victory at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road, going up to Beth Horon, and cut them down all the way to Azekar and Makedar. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekar, the Lord hurled great hailstones down on them from the sky, and more of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon, O moon, over the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. Literally, I mean, the Lord just stopped time till they'd mopped up. One of the most amazing miracles really in the Bible. 
as it is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to the man, to a man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. Now what happens here is that a coalition of five of the more powerful of the Canaanite nations come together. And what they do is they attack the Gibeonites. Now we saw last time the Gibeonites tricked Joshua and uh, got Israel to make a treaty with them even though really they should have been wiped out. Um, but the treaty stood. And uh, so really these are five Canaanite kings. I mean their attack on Gibeon was really the beginning as it were of their eventual campaign against Israel itself. Um, and because of the treaty, the Gibeonites, because treaties work two ways, don't they? The Gibeonites appeal to Israel and say, look, you've got to come and help us because we're going to get beaten up here. So Joshua goes against them, uh, you know, sort of goes to the Gibeonites um, in order to defend them against the five kings. Now, there, there, there are various points that uh, I want us to home in on here. Remember what we're seeing is that the Gibeonites who deceived Israel, made a treaty with them, now are appealing to Joshua in order to help them. Now, um, the point is that um, even if Israel hadn't had this obligation to Gibeon through the treaty, this battle against the five nations, these five kings, would have had to have come eventually. It's a battle that's come early because of the treaty with the Gibeonites. But even if this hadn't happened, even if the treaty had never happened, even if now Israel wasn't having to go and defend the Gibeonites against these five kings, nevertheless, this battle against the five kings would have happened anyway, eventually. So it's a battle that is inevitable one way or the other. Um, you know, here they've come into the land of Canaan, uh, they've begun the warfare, they've done uh, Jericho, they've done Ai, but the whole land rests, you know, is there before them. And here five of the nations are getting ready and the battle for the land in earnest is, is starting. And, uh, and it's good to underline here straight from the word go that so it is for us. We ought to be in conflict with the enemy and the enemy ought to be in conflict with us. And that what you see as you read through Joshua is that Israel is either preparing for a battle, recovering from a battle, or engaged in a battle. Now that sums up our Christian life. And for us, the battle isn't with the Canaanites. For us, the battle is with Satan and with the evil spirits. The Christian life is not peace and quiet and everything coming up roses. That is not what the Christian life is. Let's remind ourselves, go to Ephesians 6. Remember, this is the book of spiritual warfare. And remember, we've said again and again that Joshua is the counterpart in the Old Testament to the letters to the Ephesians in the New Testament. So go to Ephesians in the New Testament. Chapter 6. I just read verse 12. Read it before. 
Now it's time to read it again. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, not against the Canaanites, not against the five kings, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And Paul says, our struggle. In the King James Version, it's rather prosaically, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with, and that is it, we are in a wrestling match with the power of the enemy. If you go to 2 Corinthians, chapter 10, and in verse 3, Paul says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Now, the world fights physical wars. We don't fight physical wars, but we've nevertheless got a war to fight. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. There's that, that picture there, the strongholds of Satan. Jericho was a stronghold. Israel went against it. And you see, it's the language of struggle and warfare, direct war and wrestling. And so, Israel is facing now five kings. They've taken on Jericho, then they took on Ai. Now they're facing five nations at the same time. And so let's remind ourselves, it's inevitable, if we are going to follow the Lord, that we come up against warfare with Satan and the evil spirits. And remember that as they took Canaan, they were in a constant state that Israel was either preparing for a battle, was recovering from a battle, or was taking part in a battle. Right, now then, secondly, this particular fight that Israel is on its way to is an attack by the enemy against a past mistake. You'll remember, they should never have had this treaty with the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites had tricked them. Israel was deceived by the enemy into this treaty with the Gibeonites. But the point is, okay, that even though they were tricked into that treaty, the treaty stands. Now the five kings are attacking the Gibeonites. Can you see the picture here? We have a demonic attack against a past mistake that shouldn't have been made because Israel should have never had this treaty in the first place. Um, and so what you've got, we saw last time, Israel was tricked into this treaty. They made a mistake, Satan deceived them, Satan got a victory. But we saw as well that Romans 8.28 started to work. In everything, God works together for good. And Romans 8.28 started to work because the Gibeonites became servants to the Israelites. So good came out of it. So Satan deceived them, they made the mistake, the treaty. But the Gibeonites became their servants. So Romans 8.28, good came out of uh, that mistake. But now what we're seeing is that Satan now attacks God's outworking of their past mistake. So Satan attacked, deceived them into the treaty. God's made the treaty work for good, but now Satan, the enemy, is attacking 
the mistake itself and the Gibeonites are under threat. And so what we see here is that whenever Romans 8.28 works in our lives, we fall flat on our face. Maybe Satan gets the better of us. We fall into sin, whatever it is. We put it right with God, repent of it, and confess it. Romans 8.28, God makes it work together for good. But you can be absolutely sure that every time Romans 8.28 works in our lives, somewhere there'll be a satanic backlash against it. Satan doesn't want to leave it there. He's got a little victory over us. We get right with God. God turns that, that, that victory for Satan into a defeat against Satan. And so, therefore, Satan will attack the actual outworking. Uh, Satan doesn't like the tables being turned on him. So when Romans 8.28 works in our lives, Satan always has a little backlash. I mean, for instance, uh, I'll give you an example. Um, I mean, we uh, often suffer from condemnation over sin that we've repented of and confessed and that God has forgiven. So the point is, let's say we fall into sin, okay? We repent, we confess, God forgives us. Romans 8.28 starts to work. We come into more of the grace of God and we're humbled. We realise again our sinfulness and how much we need to hang on to Jesus. That's good coming out of the fact that we've sinned because it humbles us and brings us closer to the Lord. But for instance, that humbling that we experience before God, which is good, can become a victory for Satan if he can turn it into despair. Now, can you see the point? When we sin and confess it, Romans 8.28 works and God brings good out of it. He humbles us, he brings us closer to himself. But if Satan can turn that sense of being humbled before God into a sense of despair and our turning in on ourselves and condemnation, then can you see he's had his little backlash um, against uh, the outworking of Romans 8.28 in our lives. And so that is what's happening here. Satan attacked, as it were, through the Gibeonites, and the Gibeonites deceived Israel. That was a victory for Satan. But God worked it for good, all right? And the Gibeonites became Israel's servants. That's great, grace. Good has come out of it. Romans 8, 28 has worked. Now Satan is attacking the Gibeonites. So it's Satan attacking a past mistake. But then thirdly, let's remember that, that, that this led to the defeat of these five kings. So Satan is attacking the trees. He's attacking the Gibeonites. He's attacking Israel's past mistake. But Israel marching out to defend them, issues in the defeat of these five kings. Now, those five kings would have had to have been uh, defeated eventually. This is a battle that has just been brought forward. Israel would have had to have met these five kings in time, all right? So, what we're seeing here is we're seeing Romans 8.28 working again in regards to Satan's backlash against Romans 8.28 working out in our lives. Let me try and explain. Satan deceives you or he gets you to fall in some way. Right, okay. But repentance, you get that right with God. That repentance brings Romans 8.28 working together, you know, for good in your life. And, and you actually end up being blessed as a result of that sin because of the grace that you've come into. So then, Satan then counterattacks. 
all right, in order to try and undo the good of that. But then, in him trying to do that, okay, Romans 8.28 works again, and it's a further defeat. So Israel has been deceived by the Gibeonites, one up for Satan. But the Gibeonites become Israel's servants. Tables turned on Satan. Roman 8.28 triumphs. So now Satan attacks that mistake. And, you know, a chance for a little victory. But what happens? Israel defeats the five kings. And again, the tables turn against Satan all the time. And for Satan, really, all his attacks, they're like a load of dominoes all standing up. You knock one down, and they just all go down in series. The one domino knocks the next one down, knocks the next one down, knocks the next one down. This is what we see in that all the time, because of what Jesus has done, we're not fighting to gain victory over Satan. We're fighting from the fact that we've got victory over him anyway. We'll be seeing that in just a moment. And so the point is that Satan attacking the Gibeonites, all right, just ends up in Israel beating the five kings and it's further uh, defeat from Satan. Uh, for Satan. So Romans 8.28 works again and again and again. It's like a, a wheel rolling down a hill. Romans 8.28, Satan counterattacks. Romans 8.28, Roman, you know, Satan counterattacks. And every time Satan is being defeated in a more and more serious way in our lives. And he doesn't like it one little bit. And then fourthly, um, the Lord fights for Israel in this battle by hurls these giant hailstones down on these five kings and all their men and then he stops the sun you know he extends a whole day so there's two days here for the price of one um, in order uh, for Israel to polish off these five armies and uh, in verse 14 it just says surely the Lord fought for Israel so Israel marches off against these five kings you know they're beating them easily, just in standard sword play and warfare on the ground. But the Lord damages them even more so with giant hailstones and then extends the day by a further 24 hours. Now then, let's imagine somebody raising the question, did the Lord fight for us? Just imagine, here's a couple of Israelites and they're looking back on the day, this day of 48 hours. And I ask the question, did God fight for us? And the answer comes back, well, he stopped the sun from going down for 24 hours. What more do you want in answer to your question? So Israel was left in absolutely no doubt whatsoever that God had fought for them. If they were asking the question, did God fight for us? The answer was, well, he stopped the sun going down, didn't he? Does that answer the question? Now, let's apply that in a way to ourselves that relates to, to us. And it's a question that we need to answer again and again, and that we need to settle in some ways, once and for all. And let's ask the question, not did he fight for us? Let's ask the question, does he love us? Does God love us? Because Satan loves to attack that question in our lives. He loves to get us doubting whether God loves us. So if the Israelites at the end of this day said, did God fight for us? Well, the answer was he stopped the sun from going down. What more do you want? And if we ask the question, 
Does God love us? Let me answer that by saying, He gave us Jesus. What more do you want? Can you see? If the sun being prevented from going down for 24 hours in order for Israel to polish off the five kings, if that didn't testify that God was fighting for them, what would? And in exactly the same way, the answer to the question, does God love us, is settled once and for all by the fact that he gave us Jesus. Jesus died for us. What more do we want? We should be at the point, really, eventually, when this question is just settled, where it's, it's a no-go area for Satan anymore, where it's something that he can attack if he wants, but he'll give up eventually because it just doesn't work. Whenever we question the love of God, does he love us? The answer is he gave us Jesus. What more do we want? Go to John, John chapter 15. Verse 9, this is Jesus speaking. He says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that your, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. That's how much Jesus loves us. He laid his lives down for us. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because the servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known, made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. What more do we want? Jesus has chosen us because he loved us, and he's shown us that because he died for us. Go to Romans chapter 5. I'll read verse 8. Well, I'll read from verse 6. He says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely <coughs> will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Does God love us? Jesus died for us. What more do we want? Go to Ephesians. Chapter 3. Find verse 16. <coughs> Paul says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep nothing left when you've done there and you've run out of dimensions is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge 
Does God love us? Jesus died for us. What more do we want? Go to 1 John. One John chapter four, verse seven. It says, "Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love." This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God loves in us, and his love is made complete in us. So, did the Lord fight for Israel? Well, he made the sun stop, stand still in the sky for 24 hours. What more did they want? Does God love us? Does he fight for us? Well, he gave us Jesus. What more do we want? Let that question be answered once and for all. And then just refresh ourselves very quickly of one thing we saw last time. And it is just Israel's faithfulness here to the Gibeonites because of the treaty that they made. Their word was their bond. And that's, that should be the same for us. They gave their word to the Gibeonites in that treaty. Now the Gibeonites are in danger. So they go and they protect the Gibeonites. Their, their word was their bond. And, and that's important for us as well. If we say something, if we make a treaty, as it were, if we give our word, if it's in our power, let's make sure we do it. And let's not be too hasty to say things that aren't in our power. Make sure that what we say is what we're going to do. Right, now go to verse 16 and we'll read the next section that we're going to um, look at. So the battle is over. Not really much for battle in some ways. God did it all. There wasn't much for Israel and Joshua to do. So the, the, the five kings have been dealt with. Now the five kings had fled and hidden in a cave at Makedar. When Joshua was told that the five kings had been found hiding in the cave at Makedar, he said, roll large rocks up to the mouth of the cave and post some men there to guard it. But don't stop. Pursue your enemies, attack them from the rear, and don't let them reach their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. So Joshua and the Israelites destroyed them completely, almost to a man, but the few who were left reached their fortified cities. The whole army then returned safely to Joshua in the camp at Makedar, and no one uttered a word against the Israelites. Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. When they brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who have come with him, Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, Don't be afraid, don't be discouraged, be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. 
Then Joshua struck and killed the kings and hung them on five trees, and they were left hanging in the trees until evening. At sunset Joshua gave the order and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they'd been hiding. At the mouth of the cave they placed large rocks which are there to this day. That day Joshua took Machadar, he put the city and its king to the sword and totally devoured everyone in it. He left no survivors and he did to the king of Machadar as he had done to the king of Jericho. So what happens now, the battle's over, these five kings, they fled and they're hiding with a, uh, in a cave. And uh, they, you know, they, they get found out, you know, the Israeli army finds out where they are. So Joshua goes to the cave and uh, he, he brings out these five kings. He's got all his army there, all his men. Joshua brings these five kings out. And um, what he does is he tells all the commanders, he lays these kings on the ground. He says, right, put your foot on their necks. And each commander of the army comes forward and he puts his feet on the neck of each of the five kings. Now, of course, Joshua is doing this to show the Israeli army just how beaten these kings are. I mean, these kings, they're just dead, aren't they? I mean, they're hiding in a cave. Joshua brings them out, he makes them lie on the ground, and literally the Israeli army walks up and down on them. That's what's happening here they put their feet on the necks of these kings. Now then, does that remind you of anything? Go to Luke. Luke chapter 10. Read from verse 17. The 72 disciples returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the Spirit submits you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Um, yeah, that's um, Jesus is saying there, I'm going to enable you to tread on the power of the enemy. And here, they're putting their feet on the necks of these kings. Go back to Ephesians. And we're working up now to this um, change in the cosmic pecking order that I spoke about last time. Ephesians 1 Remember that in Joshua, the Canaanites are simply the Old Testament counterpart for the Satan and the demons today, in New Testament times. Ephesians 1, will start at the second half of verse 19. Um, and Paul says, That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he, that is God, exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand, in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Here we're seeing that Jesus is raised above all authority and that everything is under his feet. Now then, still Ephesians chapter 2, 
verse 4. Because of his great love for us, and I refer you to what we said earlier, but if we've got any doubts about that, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's his love again. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So Jesus has been raised up against all power and authority. Everything is under his feet. Here we are told that because we're Christians, we are raised up with Jesus and share the same position as it were in the heavenly places that uh, he does. Now then, if everything is under Jesus' feet, where is Satan? Under Jesus' feet. If we're raised up with Jesus, where is everything? Under our feet as well. So if we're raised up with Jesus in heavenly places, where is Satan in relation to us? Under our feet. In Luke 10 we saw Jesus said, I give you power to tread on all the power of the enemy. And we're seeing here in Joshua how Joshua got all his men to stand on the necks of these kings. So can you see that Joshua is showing the people that Satan was under their feet? And he was saying, be encouraged. This is the truth, so act on, on it. Now let's see this um, cosmic pecking order and the change that happened in regards to it. Let's go to uh, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. And we'll read verse 7. Now, and this is the writer to the Hebrews quoting Old Testament passages in regards to Jesus. Now, verse 7, and uh, this is um, quoting one of the Psalms. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honour and put everything under his feet. Now then, we've seen the crowned with glory and honour and everything put under Jesus' feet. But here, we see that God made Jesus a little lower than the angels. Now this is talking about when the second person of the Trinity became a man. When Jesus did, he became a little lower than the angels. Now that one verse tells us everything we need to know about the cosmic pecking order in, uh, before the death of Jesus on the cross. And it's quite simply this, there was God, obviously it would be Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinity, God first, then the angelic realm, then humanity, and then of course the animals. That was the pecking order, alright? God over everything, then the angels, then man, mankind, and then nature, because obviously in the Garden of Eden, you know, nature was under Adam and Eve. They were put in charge of the earth. So that's the pecking order. God, the angels, and of course with the angels are including demons, uh, humanity, and then animals. But now, bearing in mind uh, the verses that we've seen in Luke, Jesus talking about the enemy being under our feet and the Ephesian verses, all right, bearing those in mind, 
uh, go back into Hebrews chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 3 and 4. Now then, the sun, as he's talking about Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, i.e. after he's died on the cross and been raised from the dead, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So this is after Jesus now ascended into heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now what that tells us is this, when Jesus ascended, he was raised above the angels. Having become a man, he became lower than the angels because he became a man. When Jesus ascended, he still remains a man. But now, when Jesus ascends as a man, he is higher than the angels. So what we have now is a different pecking order after the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And what we have now is this. We have God, obviously, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Then we have redeemed humanity because we're glorified like Jesus. We share in his glory. Then you have the angels, the angelic realm, which includes the demons. Then you have unredeemed humanity, that's unbelievers. Then you have the animals and nature. So can you see the change that has taken place? Before Jesus died on the cross and rose again and was glorified, before that time, the pecking order was God, the angels, mankind and the animals. After Jesus, the pecking order has changed. It's now God, redeemed humanity, the angels, unredeemed humanity, unbelievers, and then the animals and nature. So the point is that because of the death of Jesus, all those who believe in him are higher on the cosmic scale than the angels and the demons. Therefore, for that reason, we have authority over them. If you go to um, Jude, the little book of Jude, and there's just a, a fascinating uh, little bit in this book that brings this out. Now, this is Jude talking about um, the danger of false teachers, demonically inspired false teachers. And he says, Verse 8, in the same way these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority and slander celestial beings. So he's talking about these, these men, they have no authority, you know, they have no respect for anything, not even angelic authority, no respect for anything at all. Alright. Now then, what he goes on to say, and, and he talks about a time when there was a, a fight. Uh, over the body of Moses after Moses had um, died in the wilderness. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. 
Now this is interesting because we're talking here, we're given a little glimpse about a, a, a spiritual battle that went on between the Archangel Michael and Satan. Now what we know from the Old Testament is that Satan was the chief angel. So before Satan fell, all right, the Archangel Michael was under Satan. Satan was the big cheese in the angelic realm. Now the point is that when Michael, the Archangel Michael, is having to fight against Satan, in order to get the victory, <coughs> Michael has to appeal to a power greater than Satan. Now the power that was greater than Satan, remember Satan was greater than Michael, so the power that Michael called on to that was greater than Satan, he cried out to the Lord, because of course the Lord is greater than everyone. And Michael said, the Lord rebuke you. Because in order to defeat Satan, Michael had to appeal to a higher authority. And the only higher authority was God himself. So therefore, when the Archangel Michael came up against Satan, he defeated Satan <coughs> by calling on a greater authority. And he said, the Lord rebuke you. But remember, I'm saying that we as redeemed humanity, as believers, we are now higher than the angels. Now then, in, Jesus, in the Bible's teaching about, for instance, the casting out of demons, when we cast out demons, do we have to say, the Lord cast you out? We don't. In Jesus' name, I cast you out. And when we come against Satan, we don't need to appeal to, we don't need to say, the Lord rebuke you. When we come up against Satan and the principalities and powers, we are saying, I rebuke you, because we are higher than the Archangel Michael. As simple as that. We are above the angels. We are above, therefore, Satan and the demons. Go back into Hebrews chapter 1. And the last verse of chapter 1, it says, Are not all angels ministering spirits? That means servant, to minister, being a servant, sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. The angels are there to serve us, the elect of God. The angels are there to serve us who are redeemed, who are believers, who follow the Lord. All the bad angels, the demons, ought to be doing this as well, but they've rebelled <coughs> against God. So rather than helping us, they're hindering us. But can you see that in regards to this, <coughs> we, in every way, are raised up over and above Satan and the evil spirits and they are under our feet because we are raised up with Jesus and have the authority that Jesus has given to us. And can you see that when Joshua puts his feet and gets everyone to put their feet on the necks of these kings, what he's doing is he's getting them to act that out. Say, look, the enemy is under your feet. Therefore, act accordingly. Act accordingly. See that Satan is under your feet. Obviously, quite unforgettable to those of us who knew him was Robert Lee's trick with, with the penny. When he put the penny on the ground and, and stand on it. And, and he'd say, that, that penny, that's Satan. That's the demons under your feet. 
Now that is the position that we fight from. We never fight to get victory over Satan. We fight from the position that we have victory over Satan. Now remember, Satan tries to deceive us to make us think we don't have victory over him. But the truth is, at any moment, like those five kings, we can put our feet on Satan's neck. And, um, and it's interesting that having done this, this, this business with standing on these five kings' neck, uh, Joshua then leaves their bodies hanging in trees all day to serve as an example. The total final humiliation, their bodies just hanging from trees. If you go to Colossians, chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, and we'll read from verse 13. Paul says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us, and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. When the Romans crucified somebody, they um, wrote on a piece of wood what the crime was that they were being crucified for, and they nailed it to the top of the cross. You could say, oh, he's dying for this crime. It was nailed there. Now, isn't it interesting, when, when Jesus died, remember Pilate, he wrote King of the Jews. Because there was no crime, there was no sin that Jesus was dying for. The truth was, he was dying for our sins. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, it was as if you and I were being crucified for our sinfulness. Only he was being crucified on our behalf. So our sinfulness, it's gone. Paid for. You know, you can only die once for your crimes. Well, we died in Jesus. It's gone. Nailed to the cross. Completely gone. And then Paul goes on to say, having disarmed the powers and authorities, this is Satan, because his hold over us was our sin. Our sin is forgiven. He made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. So here's Satan and all the demons looking on, oh at last we've, we've killed Jesus, what we've been trying to do, you know, all the time. And of course Satan and all the demons, well with the exception of the ones down in Tartarus, they didn't know about it. But uh, here Satan and all the demons on the face of the earth looking on, realise that the death of Jesus has just totally and publicly humiliated them. I mean, you know, it, it's just, they're dead. They're, they're completely dead. And, um, you know, so, so therefore, in the same way that Joshua um, co completely humiliated, you know, sort of like the final humiliation of these kings hanging them in the tree to make a, a, a kind of, um, you know, sort of example of them in exactly the same way. Uh, God has made a public example of um, Satan, and um, it—it's—he's he's just dead. You know, it, it's the cross finished him completely, and um, you know. So, in Colossians here, we we have the fact that um, you know Satan was publicly humiliated at the cross of Jesus and completely dead, and. The only power that Satan has over us is to deceive us. 
into thinking that we're under his feet. The truth is, he is under ours. We have all authority over him. In the same way that those five kings were under the feet of Joshua and the commanders in the army, in the same way Satan is under our feet. But if he can deceive us into relinquishing that authority, he can then get us living as if it's him jumping up and down all over us. And so the only power Satan has is deception. Go back to last week, we saw that, didn't we? When, you know, the way that Satan deceived Israel through the Gibeonites. And um, Satan is the deceiver. And he deceives us into thinking that we are under his feet. That is not the truth in any way at all. The truth is that he is under our feet. We're raised up with Jesus. Jesus on the cross has dealt with Satan completely and totally. The change in the pecking order means that it's God, then it's us, then it's the angels and the demons, then it's unbelievers. And whenever Satan shows his face, whenever demons come at us with temptation or whatever attack it is, we can put our foot down on their necks and uh, know the victory that we have in Jesus. Right, okay, well now we're going to really whip whip through the rest of this and you'll see why um, we don't need to carry on virtually with them. a study for each chapter. Um, well, exactly, yes, yes, it would have been a long series, wouldn't it? But uh, the rest of chapter 10 uh, just records the um, how the southern area of that bit of the land they were in were taken. Um, chapter 11 just deals with their taking of the, nor- the northern areas of, of Canaan, and it's it's not given in any detail at all. It's virtually just the information that they conquered the north. Um, in chapter 12, you have um, a complete list of all the defeated kings and their nations. So uh, basically, the next three chapters is just a very quick, you know, and they took the rest of the land and it just lists all the kings and stuff like that. And then from chapters uh, 13 through to 21, you basically get the... Um, the allocation of the land, who, who was to get what. And so it's, it's really just geographical allocation. Um, but of course it does, it does tell us, again, that, um, that because there was always more of the promised land to be taken, we've got to realise as well for us that there's always more spiritual warfare for us to do. We can never say we've arrived. We can never think God has finished working in me, now I'm there. I mean, we'll be there the day we die, or the day that Jesus comes, not before. There's always more of the land to take. There is always further to go. There is always more maturity for us to come into. There is always greater deliverance from sin for us. So it it never ends. It's an ongoing way. Now, uh, the last three chapters I'll say a little bit more about mainly chapter 22 and uh, we get um, a, a story here this is this is basically uh, at the end when most of the land has been subdued um, you know most of uh, you know sort of like Canaan has been taken and most of the Canaanites have been defeated not sadly all of them and uh, and you'll remember um, 
Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh, the Transjordan tribes. Now, let me remind you of their history. Before Israel got into the Promised Land, um, they spent a little bit of time the other side of the Jordan. All right. So the Promised Land was was east of the Jordan, but they approached it from the west. And that land around the west of the Jordan, before you go over into Canaan, um, the tribes of Reuben and Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh decided that they really liked that part, that area. And what they did is they said to Moses, look, you're going into the promised land, into the Canaan, like to the east, sorry, to the west of the Jordan. We really like it here in the east. So would it be possible for us to have this bit for our inheritance? Is that okay? And you'll remember that the deal that Moses struck with them was, right, okay, that's no problem. He says, but the problem you're going to be up against is that it'll look like you're just going for an easy life. Because the rest of us are going to be going across the Jordan and we're going to have to fight to get our inheritance. If you just have your inheritance here, you've got no fighting to do. People will think you're just doing this because you want a shirt. And we saw, didn't we, that these Transjordan tribes, uh, Transjordan across the Jordan, so that's where they settled, that these Transjordan tribes rather tended to represent what I call doing your bit, no shirking. And the agreement they came with Moses, well, look, I'll tell you what, how about we will come across Jordan with you and we will fight until the rest of you have got your inheritance that side of the Jordan. When all the fighting's over, then we'll come back here. Then everyone will know that we're not choosing this place because we don't want to fight. We're choosing this place because we like it, but we'll come and fight for your bit of land and then we'll come and settle here afterwards. Then there won't be any misunderstanding. And so <coughs> Moses made that agreement with them. And we saw earlier on in this series, didn't we, that when uh, Joshua starts to lead the people um, across the Jordan, that he reminds the tribes of, you know, these tribes of their responsibility. And so they all go across together. So basically, Reuben, Gad and half Manasseh, they've been as good as their word. They've fought hard, they've proved that they weren't shirkers at all, that they were in there and uh, up there with the best of them. So now what they do is they go back across the other side of the Jordan to where they originally wanted to settle. So there they are. There's most of Israel in the land of Canaan, which was to the west of Jordan, and now you've got these two and a half tribes and they go and settle on the other side of the Jordan to the east of it. Now, what happens is that they build an altar at kind of the point where their land ends and the rest of Israel begins. Okay, so at the border of the Promised Land, they build this altar. Okay, now what happens now is that the tribes in the land of Israel, they, um, they 
look at this altar that Reuben, Gad and half Manasseh are building and come to the conclusion that they're into a kind of idolatry. And they think, well, look, we've no sooner taken the land than that lot, okay, they're, they're getting into idolatry now and crumbs, that's going to bring God's judgment on us, we're going to lose the land, better get over there and sort them out. Now, remember, the whole thing surrounding Reuben, Gad and half Manasseh was that Moses said, your desire to settle over that side, this side of the Jordan might make people think you don't want to fight, they might misunderstand. So Reuben, Gad and half Manasseh, well look, to make sure they don't, we'll fight with the rest of you. Alright, no misunderstanding. And what happens here, because we see another thing that Reuben, Gad and half Manasseh are all about, this altar was actually an altar to the Lord. And the reason that the tribes put it there, on the boundary between them and the rest of Israel, was so that they would never forget that they were, they were different sides of the Jordan, they were one nation, the people of Israel. And Reuben, Gad and half Manasseh putting that altar there, that altar was 100% of the Lord. It was their faithfulness to the Lord that made them put that altar there. The rest of Israel is looking on at that altar and they are totally misunderstanding. This is wrong judgment. Complete and total wrong judgment. And what happens is all the rest of the tribes in the land, they get all their armies together and they go to march on Reuben, Gad and half Manasseh and, you know, to fight them because they think they're into idolatry. And here you've got an impending massive fight about to happen between God's people and it's all based on a misunderstanding. <coughs> but fortunately, common sense prevailed and there were some in Israel who said, well, look, hang on, let's go and chat to Reuben, Gad and half Manasseh first. Thank heavens they did. Because they went and chatted and realised that the whole thing, it was a storm and it was a complete misunderstanding. And that it wasn't Reuben, Gad and half Manasseh getting to idolatry at all. It was their faithfulness to the Lord. This altar, far from being idolatrous to a false god, was there to remind them that they were the people of Israel with those on the other side and that they worshipped the one God the Lord God of Israel. But you can see how that was Satan trying to get in, to split God's people purely on misunderstanding. And, and, and again, this is one of the, the reasons, you know, the ways that Satan attacks. When we did um, the Church Life series, Crumbs, quite, quite, quite a long, long time ago now, one of the things that we saw, and we traced it through the Acts of the Apostles, didn't we, that, um, that, that as, as long as the church was being attacked by unbelievers from the outside, it flourished. While the church was being persecuted from the outside, it flourished. But then we saw how Satan tried to infiltrate and destroy the church from the inside. The first thing we noted was the thing about Ananias and Sapphira, the hypocrisy that they brought into the church. You know, making out that they were giving, you know, more to the Lord than they actually were. And that's, that's why they were both subject to the sin unto death. God made an example of them right at the beginning. Because if that kind of hypocrisy had got into the church, it could have been the end of the church before the church really got going. But then the second attack from within 
you'll remember um, in Acts chapter 6 was the, um, the thing when uh, some of the widows um, from the Greek-speaking Jews were being left out um, in the handing out of the daily money. And, uh, and what was happening is that in Jerusalem at the time when the church got going, you had the Jews who were the Israeli Jews, they lived in Israel, they spoke Hebrew, but you had the Jews who came from outside the land and they spoke Greek, you know, they were largely from the Greek Empire. They were still Jews, but they spoke Greek, and so they were called Hellenistic Jews, because that was the word for Greece. Um, and so what was happening is that those, um, the widows from the Greek Jews were being neglected um, in the money being handed out to the widows, and this was causing contention. Now, the Greek Jews, whose widows were being left out, they were in the minority. They were only a small number of the Jews in the church. Most of the Jews in the church were the Jerusalem and Israeli Jews. But you'll remember that the apostles countered um, that situation by saying, right, it's time for you to have deacons now. And, uh, you know, choose seven men, okay, and uh, you know, and we'll lay hands on them and pray for them. And these men are going to make sure that no one gets neglected in the practical waiting at tables and distributing money, blah 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 blah. So that was the practical answer to that problem. But what was so amazing is that if you read through who those seven men were, the the Jerusalem church at large chose them. The church at large were mostly Israeli Jews. The problem concerned a faction of the very much smaller uh, number of the Greek-speaking Jews, but all seven deacons had Greek names. And what happened was the Jerusalem, you know, the Israeli Jews in the early church said, "Well, look, crumbs, this hasn't been fair. They've missed out, all right. And and you know, there's only a small number of them." So what we'll do, these men that we've been told to choose, we'll actually make sure they're all Greeks. And then that will put to rest even the slightest hint that because they're Greek-speaking Jews, there's any prejudice against them at all. Do you see what I mean? What a leaning over backwards for peace and for reconciliation. And, uh, you know, so, so thank heavens that here in Joshua chapter 22, that at least the delegation of people did go down to Reuben, Gad and half Manasseh, to double check just to see if this war was needed after all. And, uh, and crumbs, I mean, aren't there times, and we all stand in danger of it, when we're ready to declare war on somebody or a group of people, having got completely wrong ideas in our heads about them. I mean, you know, so, so, I mean, maybe someone genuinely does want to do you wrong. Well, you still don't declare war on them, you forgive them and love them. But can't we all look back at times when we've just been paranoid? When we've just can't, it's, it's been a pure, and we've been ready, in all our defences ready against that person, this attack that's going to come. And then we, 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 we have the common sense to open our minds and look at it objectively. It was all in our minds. This, this is Satan manipulating. This is Satan trying to divide from the inside. <coughs> and so it does show the importance, and the Bible does say, that if you ever have a suspicion that anything's wrong, don't believe it until you've got real evidence of it. 
That's important. Otherwise, we're going to end up fighting imaginary battles all the time. Important, I mean, let every accusation be on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's what the Bible says all the time. So we've got to make sure that the truth wins out at, at, at every point. <coughs> all right, now in chapter 23, the penultimate chapter, Good word that penultimate because it's used. That means the chapter, the, the penultimate is the last. Is not quite the last. The one before the last. Good, good word that. All right, make friends and influence people. Uh, in Joshua twenty-three, uh, you get Joshua's farewell speech to the leaders. He's about to die. He knows he's about to die, so he's handing over to the other leaders, and uh, he, he he urges them. It's, it's, it's like a farewell speech, rather like um, Moses does in Deuteronomy and he encourages them to stay faithful to the Lord he warns them the great danger that intermarriage would pose for them that they weren't to intermarry that if they did that 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 would be compromise that they were to marry in the Lord as it were and of course intermarriage destroyed them again and again and again so he warns them about that and then tells them that make sure you're obedient to the word of God stay true to the covenant God's made with you and then a warning that the enemy could yet defeat them. And the enemy could yet defeat them, and, and there were times when they did. And remember, eventually, both the northern and southern kingdoms ended up having been taken into captivity and out the land completely. So there's that warning, look, stay faithful. Satan is under our feet. That's, that's true, we have the victory. But there's been no doubt at all, if we get into unconfessed sin, if we get into blatant disobedience against the Lord, we're not going to lose our salvation, we're quite safe as far as eternity is concerned, but Satan can get in. So we can't afford to be passive, we can't say, oh well Satan's under our feet, don't matter what I do, it does matter what we do. Satan is all the time trying to get in and there's no contradiction between Satan being under our feet and us getting deceived and disobedient to the Lord and ending up with Satan jumping all over us. Because if Satan can deceive us, Satan can get us into undealt with sin, well then he can start to pick us off. And uh, even to the point where some Christians actually end up falling away. So there's the warning, the enemy could yet defeat us. So we've got to make sure that he doesn't. He can't take away our salvation. But he can defeat us. And, and, and he, I mean, Paul, New Testament, warns about people who have made shipwreck of their faith. What a dreadful thought. We could be shipwrecked. So we've got to make sure that we're not shipwrecked. We've all seen believers end up being shipwrecked because of undealt with sin, because of the refusal to be honest with the Lord and to be obedient to the Lord and to call sin sin and to put things right that are wrong. We know it can happen, and so we must all be on our guard against that. And then um, in chapter 24, what happens is the, they renew the covenant with God at Shechem. So they kind of, basically having taken most of the land now, is a massive kind of rededication thing. They as a nation rededicate themselves to the Lord. I mean, in some ways, we, we, we have to do that every day, don't we? I mean, that's, you know, we know that to all the time be surrendering to the Lord in an ongoing way. And uh, Joshua speaks to the people for the last time and again exhorts them to be faithful. 
and uh, and and then Joshua dies. He's 110 years old, and, and he dies. Um, Eliezer, who was his high priest by then, he he dies as well. And um, Eliezer was Aaron's son. Uh, Aaron was Moses' brother, the first high priest, and Eliezer was his son. And uh, so so really, it's 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 the end of an era. And then it it, it all ends with uh, Joseph's bones being buried in Shechem and all those hundreds of years before when Joseph was raised up all right in Egypt and uh, and as a result of Joseph ending up Pharaoh's number two in Egypt that was where Jacob and the Israelites started off as a nation wasn't it and all those hundreds of years before in Genesis um, Joseph had requested that his bones would be buried in Shechem. All those hundreds of years prior to this, he knew that Israel was going to have the land because God had promised it to Abraham. That's faith. I mean, and here, I think it's some 400 years after he said, oh, by the way, take my bones with you and bury them in Shechem. Now, 400 years later, his bones are buried in Shechem. And uh, that's, that's faith. That, that's the kind of faith that moves mountains, isn't it? That, that's the kind of faith that waits with patience. Right? So no matter how impossible it is, no matter how long it takes, God has said this, I believe him. I believe him. And there are things in our lives as well. We're, we know It may feel that crumbs, it's a bit like saying, I want to be buried in such and such a place. It, it may sort of seem some sort of, well, hang in there. Because it will happen. God will do it. And, um, you know, and, and, and so here, Israel has ended up in the land as God has promised. And of course, after this, it, it, it leads into the, the whole period of history where you had the, um, you know, sort of like the judges and then the eventual lead up to God giving Israel kings because that's what they wanted. Right, so there you have it, Joshua the taking of the land, spiritual warfare, possessing our possessions, all these things. Remember, God said to them, See, I have given it to you. It's yours. It's done. Completely by faith. Every bit of the ground that you put your foot on, you'll get. The enemy will be pushed back. And that's the balance. It's all there. You know, fullness of life in Jesus, victory over Satan. It's all there. It's a gift. It's in us. We are dead to sin. We are alive to Christ. Fact. Period. The land has been given. It's ours. But you move into it step by step. And what do you do to the ground every time you take a step? You put your foot on it. And what's always there? A king. A little bit of the devil in our lives. A little bit of the old nature. And we put our foot down on it because we have authority over it. So bit by bit, every step of obedience, every day of faithfulness, every confession of unfaithfulness, every repentance of every sin, bit by bit we put our foot down on a little bit more of the ground, of the land, and so we grow and we're coming into more and more the fullness of Jesus' life in us, which we have already anyway, because Jesus does live in us. And so for Israel, they went in, they took a physical land. For us, well, it's more, as it were, Jesus 
taking our lives. He spreads out into every area of our lives as Israel spread out into every bit of the promised land. And at each step of the way, we've got to cooperate with him, being obedient, being faithful, being repentant when we're not. And in that way that we will actually come into the experience of what is true in the heavenlies. So what is already true up there, we're free from sin, we're delivered from it. Satan is completely under our feet, we're raised up with Jesus. What is true up there, we actualize in our lives down here, one step at a time. That's the taking of the promised land. That's growing in maturity. And every step of the way, it's spiritual warfare because the enemy is there. And one could say that the Christian life is a constant pushing back of the enemy in our lives. And because of what Jesus has done, we can do it. So, Joshua, uh, there you go, finish there.